I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey meant for but few. Take my hand and we'll ramble with Reverend Campbell and Nine Cents' devilish crew. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. Today, I'm being joined by Witch Zafdig. How are you, my dear? I am quite well. How are you? I'm... Uh, okay, I said there was not going to be any banter, but I have to, like, mention... I have this huge, like, new setup. Oh, yeah, which I just is ironic because of what's happening next week, but... So, it's like this monstrous mic right in my face, like, wow. covering up half my vision from my monitor and... <laughs> I mean, it's nice because you don't hear the thumping on my table anymore, my desk, but now it's just like, bah, like, I feel like I'm in a porn and there's like this big monster in my face. Um, Are you getting ready for the money shot? Is that, that what's happening? I have a screen over it. Hopefully that'll protect my eyes. I hear that hurts. I don't know for sure. Um, okay. Well, it's great to have you, the audience, and it is December 27th. We have a fantastic show for you this week. Uh, I got to run down this roster because we had the holiday episode last week this week we're pushing everything that was supposed to go then to now so this is a really really jam-packed episode we're going to start off with unorthodoxy with which zaftik episode 16 what are we calling this one well today we're actually going to talk a little bit about what it means to conduct fieldwork in religious studies and specifically we're going to talk about my research into the church of satan Wow. All right. Well, we're going to follow that up immediately with Agent Provocateur. Militant eroticism is going to follow that up, and we're going to close with the Satanism today, uh, episode six, and uh, Magister Harris speaks to John Shaw. So that's going to be a really great episode, really jam-packed. Um, quick announcements uh, next week. I'm hoping everyone's going to tune in because it's a very special episode. Uh you're going to want to tune in if you've been listening to Nine Cents for a while. And I just want to say, because this is the last episode of this year, um, thank you for everyone who has tuned in. I think this has been our best year to date. Five years of this uh, really fantastic podcast. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been such a privilege to be able to produce this with all the contributors. And this last year, we've had nine of the best uh, voices in Satanism uh, in this. So I hope, I encourage everyone, if you haven't listened to all of the episodes this past year, do so, or at least uh, archive them for when you can. Uh, because you never know, we might be hit by a meteor or something. And <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, you know. Yeah. So check out the episodes. They're really worthwhile, and um, I think you're going to dig them. All right, so let's go ahead and start with a little unorthodoxy with Witch Zaftig. <laughs> Fascination is a binding, which comes from the spirit of the witch, through the eyes of him that is bewitched, entering to Fascination is a binding, now the instrument of fascination is the spirit, namely a certain pure, lucid, subtle vapor, generated of the pure blood of the witch by the heat of the heart. On today's segment of Unorthodoxy with Witch Saftig, this is episode 16, we're going to be talking about 
conducting fieldwork. What that means from a social scientific perspective. And um, specifically, we will talk about my own research into the Church of Satan and some of the challenges I face in terms of doing research with human subjects. What how the, the academy frames <laughs> like this testing. kind of research. It does sound like testing. And the, what's interesting, though, is actually I have to go through very similar ethical protocols in order to do um, research with humans, uh, alive humans, or even dead humans, as we'll, as we'll get into. <laughs> Let me back up a little bit. There are different types of scholarship in departments of religion uh, who are doing that are doing social scientific type of stuff. So you can do textual analysis. Uh, some people are doing archaeological type of, of works, and some people do material culture. So which would just mean the environment someone lives in, the books they use, the different paraphernalia, the clothes they wear, the rituals. Um, I tend to do a mix of these things, but my other data source is then research with human participants, <laughs> uh, alive ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, within the social sciences and even with the, within medical research, um, you do have to uh, fill out these rather extensive ethical uh, protocol forms. So, you know, outlining the the different ways you're approaching your research and what it means to have uh, human subjects. Uh, what's interesting, even though I don't deal with this and people in the social sciences don't, is that if you're doing medical research with biological materials, you also have to fill out these types of forms and pass these types of rigorous standards. So if you're doing with tissues, organs, uh, blood, plasma, skin, hair, urine, all these kinds of things, there is still uh, different ways of um, ethical boundaries of what you can do and how you dispose of and how you treat biological materials, which is interesting and not something people tend to think about. Um, you don't have to fill out a form, say, if you are observing people in a public space, so it's not quite required. However, the criteria uh, to fill out an ethical form and have it passed by the board of your uh, university um, so first, my, my first step would be my supervisor of once I fill out these ethical forms and outline what I'm doing. The next step would uh, be the faculty of my department. And then the final step is usually the ethics of the office of research. So every university will have a specific office dedicated to research that vets the ethical boundaries. So for one, I am intervening, which means I'm coming into direct contact and asking questions. So once you have intervention from the researcher and the participant, um, that means you have to fill out, uh, you, you have to pass these uh, types of requirements. If there is an expectation of privacy, um, or if, if the research can identify someone, uh, a specific individual. So a research in a, a public place you know, when you're not intervening, they have no expectation of privacy, and you don't identify specific individuals, you can do that without being able to um, go through these types of uh, hoops. But if you are, then it becomes extremely important. Um, what it means, I keep saying these ethical boundaries, mm -hmm. is that essentially an ethics board is concerned with the vulnerability of your particular group. And um, vulnerability uh, is defined in, in different ways. So what they talk about is what is considered a minimal risk or maximum risk. So um, my particular group, the Church of Satan, is minimal risk. So I'm limiting it to 
are solely adult members of the Church of Satan. Um, and the risks, although there are risks involved, so I have to outline um, clearly what I'm doing to protect people's identity, because the prime risk factor for being involving being involved in my particular research is uh, yeah. if I don't properly protect the identity of my informants. Informant mm. is the wonderful um, Cold War <laughs> word that we use <laughs> for people who participate. Cold deep throat. Uh, Yes, exactly. So if if I was, this is not my case, but let's just say to give uh, someone an idea of what it means, if um, if your particular group or informant is someone that has suffered uh, violence, uh, anything to do with anything to do with minors uh, entirely, or you're doing medical testing, or someone that has diminished mental or physical capacity, um, it was interesting in uh, Canada is my research form asked specifically if you're dealing with First Nations peoples, the indigenous population, because they have um, a particular type of vulnerability in Canada in terms of unequal treaties, uh, different types of way people frame them, uh, lots of violence being brought against them uh, from the government and from individual people. So it's actually a, a, a specific question, which is uh, interesting to me. So it sort of demonstrates what ethics boards are concerned with when they are uh, vetting this type of research. Uh, because I'm not involving minors and, and I'm not asking questions pertaining to people's suffering uh, personal violence. So if you were doing a research on people who've gone through genocide or people who had suffered a severe uh, abuse or torture mentally or sexually, then you as the researcher have to put in different safeguards. So you have to have um, mental health counselors available to them. It's not your job to be their counselor, but if by talking about certain things, like it, it causes them distress, then first you have to outline the risk to the informants. Here's the risks of you talking to me. And then you have to say, and here are the resources I'm making available to you. So this is one of your responsibilities as an ethical researcher. Uh, fortunately, none of this applies to me. Um, because I'm not, <laughs> I'm never going to, yeah, I'm, I'm never going to be asking people about the personal violence that they've, that they've suffered. Um, although I should say that, let's say, um, I was having a conversation with someone on the record and that came up. I would then also, it's one of those things where there's unexpected things that happen that I would then, as my position as researcher, not as friend or acquaintance, uh, would have to offer some or suggest some kind of professional help, like if ever that happened. I, I don't anticipate it, but it is something that you do have to uh, think about when you're uh, conducting research or questioning um, lots of different types of people. Uh, because when I outline the vulnerability factor, my main vulnerability for my uh, control group, the members of the Church of Satan, is their membership identity, I have to provide a detailed account of how I collect, use, and store the data. So emails, notes, uh, any identifying factor, I have to um, list how I'm going to encrypt my emails and then encrypt the files on my computer. And if I take physical notes, then how am I going to store those um, in a secure location? So it can't just be left on my desk if I have people over. I have to put it in a drawer that's locked. So when I'm having uh, friends over for cocktails, which does happen in my place at times, 
that the casual observer couldn't look over uh, my notes. So privacy becomes of uh, paramount importance. Mm -hmm. I also have to provide uh, informed consent, and they have to vet my consent form. And in the consent form, I have to ask people how they how they want to be identified, um, a pseudonym, um, a, a pseudonym of their choosing, a pseudonym of my choosing, their real name, their online name. Um, there's different ways of doing this. And uh, also how I recruit. So recruiting becomes a, another interesting factor because there is unethical, quote unquote, ways to recruit people. Um, so if you're doing things in secret, if I was um, pretending to be a, a member of the Church of Satan and infiltrating the group and trying to get people to talk to me off the record, that is highly unethical. <laughs> <laughs> What's you know, I've never actually seen your red card. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? And I will admit, nobody has because I lost it years ago. Ah! <laughs> I know. In, in one of the moves, in one of the moves, like I was yeah. moving around a lot, and like, and I so I have I have no idea. Uh, but let me assure the listeners that <laughs> the CUS has verified my yeah. membership and identity. They have a record of it, and I'm I'm sure uh, they will provide proof if needed. <laughs> <laughs> She's legit. She's on the level. <laughs> I, I'm legit. Um, What's interesting is that journalists don't have those uh, specific uh, guidelines. So they can infiltrate a particular group or a religion, and uh, they do often. And 30 years ago, uh, scholars weren't required with these same things, but a lot of issues were brought up with this uh, <laughs> because it can create um, some very serious ethical problems if we think about the Milgram experiment or um, sometimes in the medical uh, field, there was a, I believe it was in the 1960s, where the U.S. government was going into poor black communities in the in the country in the in in rural uh, areas and deliberately infecting them with syphilis to see what would happen. It's because they didn't have to pass these particular guidelines and just watching the progression of the disease and telling these people that they were getting uh, health care. So <laughs> that is wait, no whoa. <laughs> The U.S. government, not terribly long ago, mm. did this. So uh, governments, when they're doing these kinds of things, part of the very strict um, uh, guidelines for research in nowadays that sometimes researchers complain about is brought about because there didn't used to be as many and some highly unethical and questionable and criminal things happened. You know, deliberately infecting someone with a disease without their consent, um, mm. criminal, and like no one ever got no one ever went to jail for that. <laughs> so it's the government, what are they? <laughs> I know they're going to put themselves in jail. Uh, so these are the types of formal uh, hurdles that I that I would have to go through research in the Church of Satan. So I outline everything, and um, I also at the very beginning have to state my positionality, which means because I am also a member of the group uh, that I am researching, I have to. Uh, outline what it is that I'm doing. So when I list how I'm recruiting, I have to say, well, some of these people I know as friends and some of these people I know through a, an online network and some I've met in person. And I have to talk a little bit about what that means. The research form isn't terribly concerned with what happens after that. So they want to make sure that um, <laughs> their ass is covered with <laughs> litigation. But then there's all these other types of concerns that arise when you're doing research with, uh, with humans in general, right? Because humans are humans, whether you're part of a group or not. But my uh, particular challenges 
that are not in the forum and aren't part of it, but they are part of a discussion with my supervisors and my professors of how you you conduct anthropological type of research. So how do I negotiate my position as a scholar with my position within the COS? And, and, and it's not this clear cut thing. Um, some of it is sort of happens on the go and you become, you, you're faced with new challenges, but I'll give you uh, one particular example. If I wasn't part of this group, I would be more or less neutral about my position. So if someone asked me my political opinion about uh, gun control or abortion, I might give a vague kind of, you know, non-answer. Uh, the challenge within the COS is that sometimes I have voiced my opinion on these things. Uh, uh, not gun control, uh, because it's, I, I figure uh, as a Canadian, if, you, <laughs> if we're asking my opinion on gun control, as a Canadian, because we can't really have them, I sort of think it's up to people who, countries that do have them to decide that. And I don't really have an opinion on it. I think mm -hmm. every case is different. So I'm, I'm technically for it, but I, I don't think it's my thing. I have uh, very firm ideas on access to uh, abortion and <laughs> reproductive health for women and men. Uh, the reason I bring up those contentious, those potentially contentious issues is that because I am a participant in this group and voicing my private opinions on all kinds of issues, sometimes that can clash with someone I may be, uh, you know, may have given a questionnaire to and they may know it and they may have resentment feelings towards or not, or they could just not really care what my personal mm -hmm. thing is. So, but, but I bring it up just because in general with friends and family, you have tension between different political or social opinions. And within groups that you're researching, uh, it, it becomes a little bit more amplified, right? Because an informant may have a concern about how I would frame their opinions. Um, if if someone knows I have uh, feminist leanings and they are loudly and vocally anti-feminist in front of me, do I then, you know, would their concern be that I then skew their information, you know, mm -hmm. to sort of that kind? The answer is is no, and that's one of the sort of things that are never on a form because it's something you face within the field. Um, my approach is always that. In that position, with that questionnaire, with with that particular defined space, it's very an interview space is very much like ritual space. Within the confines of this particular interview, I am the the researcher, and then when I'm writing about this particular information, I'm going to do to the best of my ability, be intellectually honest, and uh, allow that person's voice to speak for itself and what their particular opinions are. Another potentially uh, contentious, or if not contentious, at least ambiguous area is talking about uh, magic. Lots of Satanists have very different opinions of magic, and uh, some I'm totally on board for, and some I'm, I'm not entirely sure of, personally. I have to set those aside and think, well, what serves the study best to talk mm. about these, this variety? And I've, I've sort of come to the conclusion that it took a while to, um, to think about the definition of satanic magic itself as this uh, evolving, uh, somewhat ambiguous type of space, so that when I write about it, it allows for uh, a variety of opinions. If I don't, if I don't fix the definition, then I can allow for different types of, of opinions. There may be broad parameters. So if you say I think demons are real, I might. <laughs> I might, uh, you know, it, it may not be in line with what how Satanism defines itself, but still, within an interview, I wouldn't correct that person. I'd have to yeah. say, 
in my study, I might say, well, officially the literature says this. I've had informants who, who tell me this. And, and I still have to be honest. I can't, my prime purpose is not to serve the interests of the Church of Satan but to serve the interests of the study in terms of furthering knowledge, in terms of uh, furthering knowledge within the academy. And my main audience is always other academics. Because my main audience is always other academics, I I have to set aside any concerns about um, how the Church of Satan defines itself and their message in order to then do more justice to uh, the academic study itself. So these are these are some of the uh, challenges, and then there's the other last one. Just to bring up an example, there's many other challenges. But like, what if someone just flat out doesn't like me, <laughs> or, or what if I don't like them? What do what do you do then? And I've also uh, come to the uh, approach that I don't care if someone's willing to participate. <laughs> if someone's willing to participate, and especially if I think they have something valuable to say, because. Mm. Even the Satanists that I've met that I don't particularly like, um, more often than not, uh, can be articulate about uh, quite a few things and uh, more, a lot of things actually, <laughs> and so that so that their particular opinion on something is irrelevant for how we would personally uh, feel about each other. But uh, it's just to show you that even though on paper it sounds very neat, here's your ethical form, here's if you pass all these guidelines, encrypting data, uh, fieldwork is messy. And scholars, uh, the best studies, acknowledge that fieldwork itself is always messy because it's people dealing with people. And you, even though you try to be kind of neutral, never actually are. And because I'm a member, I don't pretend. I don't even, I eliminate that pretense altogether. (laughs) I'm not neutral. Then what? I then have to ask, then what? I'm not neutral at all, actually. I'm invested in this uh, group. I'm a member. I'm a titled member, even. So then, then how am I negotiating these kinds of, of concerns. Even if I set aside my personal feelings for the COS, uh, they can inform how I'm framing this. Obviously, I have more access than other researchers, but it doesn't mean that they dictate everything I say, because then that's that's just bad, sloppy research. Yeah. What's, um, wh- what's that balance between... <clears throat> There's so many questions I have running through my head. What's the balance between... Um, studying the religion and and maybe i i should just ask for a clarification on what you're studying are you studying the structure the organization that you're satan are you studying the religion of satanism or are you studying the individuals that follow the religion uh that's an interesting question so it it would be easier for me to look at just the text Mm -hmm. right um, I could read all the texts, I could read a lot of the, the blogs and listen to podcasts and that kind of secondary content. Well, it's still primary source, but it's it's not as messy as doing interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I find that the, I'm certainly going to do all that because that's important information and people are uh, more articulate with prepared content, certainly. But I'm much more interested in um, Satanism as a lived religion. So what does it mean for members who identify as Satanists to live satanically in the world. This is my primary research question. What is it? How do they identifying satanic lifestyle behavior? Uh, is there separation between satanic and non-satanic? Um, what does it mean to identify this way? And how does it reflect in behavior and profession and in, in raising children in um, interests? All these things. 
the reason I find this more exciting is because people tend to be incredibly articulate about things that they care about. So the texts are one thing, and they're certainly important primary content. Mm -hmm. But that studies, those studies have been done, maybe not to great extent, but and they will be done. And that access, that material is there forever. However, individual people are not. And it makes it much richer and more alive. So my primary research question is, and, and um, my ethics form will ask you, there's a line, what is your primary research question? <laughs> so my investigation is how members of the Church of Satan um, discuss and examine living satanically in the world. Is there, is there any distinction made between... Because you had earlier you mentioned, you know, what if someone did say that they believed in demons? Mm -hmm. Is there a separation in your presentation between the structure of Satanism as it's disseminated via the literature and the Church of Satan and how the member is being represented or you know, in the interview or in the discussion? Mm -hmm. Because I could imagine it would be very confusing for someone on the outside to look Certainly. in and say, oh, well, the literature says they don't believe in demons, but individually they actually do believe in demons because this person who is representative right now right. of Satanism says they believe in demons. So there's, there could be a potential confusion there. How, do, how would you yes. address that? Uh, and that's an excellent question because I've had to think a lot about that. What, what would that mean in terms of my research? So uh, for one, I'd have to say, is the people saying that they believe in demons significant? Mm -hmm. So if I um, send out my questionnaires, they're still being formulated. They're still being vetted by my, <laughs> by my faculty right now, my research questions. But if, when I finally launch the questionnaire and uh, I get 100 back, say is a nice round answer is that your dog minnie's uh rattle? yeah she's <laughs> scratching <laughs> it. So I, I keep That's forgetting cool. to take her out um so if i get a hundred uh, let's say a hundred people uh respond and one or two tell me you know confess that there's you know sort of room for this allowance like because i would i would it is my duty to also clearly define well here's what the literature says here's how the church of satan defines itself here's the definition that they have spent a lot of effort maintaining and promoting and the lines are very clear and they've been clear since the very beginning like so so one i state that and two i then say well here's a couple of informants that mentioned it if 50 people respond <laughs> that they believe demons are real, I would absolutely have to discuss that because then that's a significant number. That is significant data that then shifts um, what it means. And then there would be the ambiguous answer. Like, well, um, when I experience ritual, um, I feel that there is presence there. I don't take it outside of ritual. So then that's more of an ambiguous um, answer and it's it's actually kind of interesting. Like you know, can can people cognitively have these rich ritual experiences that they do that then um, bring outside of ritual? I don't think that's a question anybody can really answer, but it certainly would be part of my discussion. Like I I, I wouldn't have a definitive answer on that yeah. kind of thing. No one really can, but at least it would be interesting data if there was a significant amount of. So I, so my best approach is to allow for some elasticity for this and then decide, make decisions. I have to make decisions on what to include and what not to include and make certain that the editorial decisions I'm making serve the interests of the study, not the interests of the Church of Satan. Yeah. So my, my, the, 
I'm not a scholar, and so obviously my I'm I'm asking these questions not to be antagonistic, but just generally because I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Um, as a as a priest in the Church of Satan, whenever I discuss the organization, I always I always discuss it from a position of this is how the organization represents itself, and mm-hmm. never from a place of. Um, these other individuals who may or may not be active members or even members in the first place who identify as Satanists, you know, see it this way. Like I never confuse the two. And, and traditionally I completely ignore the the other because it's not relevant to, to Satanism in my opinion, because that's an individual's interpretation or expression, not the religion. So when you first started or when you, you know, sort of landed on the, the outline of what you would be discussing were you ever concerned that your understanding may dramatically alter or that those that you are interacting with in order to complete your work are going to somehow color your perspective of the organization differently? Uh, certainly. And that's, a, that's a, another concern that researchers have to uh, um, think about. I don't necessarily think that in my study those types of thoughts need to make it into the final print. Um, because ultimately the study isn't about me and my concerns and my anxiety or, or not, you know, about those kinds of ideas. But it is something within the process of, of uh, editorial data. And what that just means is when I choose to include a factoid or not, I really have to think about my personal motivations for those things. So one of the ways I've tried to uh, set at least helpful guidelines is to say only members of the Church of Satan that consider themselves active. Mm-hmm. Not that I would consider active. So they have to be registered members. And if they consider themselves as living satanically, they have to, for one, prove that they're a member to me. Um, uh, not They don't have to go via the Church of Satan. It has nothing to do with them, the administration. But I somehow have to have some sort of proof. So um, a hierarchy has to either vouch for them, they have to send me their a copy of their card, um, I, they have to direct me to their website or, you know, they, I have to know of their content somehow. So the random person that answers a questionnaire that may come across my questionnaire and just tells me that they're a Church of Satan member, uh, I'm not going to use that data because mm-hmm. as you and I both know, that opens up a large potential <laughs> for um, people who are a fraudulent type of response. So people mm-hmm. who are not COS members at all, uh, answering things in a way that serve an outsider's agenda. Uh, and so, so for one, I'm eliminating that. That doesn't mean that there won't be a margin of error for certain things, right? As you said, as the priest, your primary concern is to, to think about, um, when you're answering those questions, is to think about how the Church of Satan defines itself. And it's certainly part of my um, approach to constantly be talking about these these things, and and I may get you know answers that reflect perfectly in line, and I may get answers that are a little slightly gray, and I may get answers that are uh, far out onto <laughs> left field. Uh, yeah. Who knows? I, I think that's the exciting thing. In terms of my personal um, shift, uh, quite a bit has happened already. Even you know in the almost 10 years that I've been a member of the Church of Satan, because in 2006, I think I, I'm pretty sure I became a member in 2006 or early 2007. Mm-hmm. So it's been almost a decade. Uh, my understanding of Satanism has certainly shifted. Yeah. So uh, in terms of how I think about what um, applying 
satanic principles in my own life in terms of uh, negotiating my satanic identity. So it's, it's constantly in flux and shifting anyway. So uh, I'm not, it's not a, a primary concern of mine. And if it becomes an issue, my, my presupposition is that I should deal with it on my own time and not with the informants I'm talking to. Yeah. Um, was this your first idea for like a thesis? I mean, was it was actually, I was going to, I'm doing it for my PhD, my doctoral dissertation, and I was going to do it for, um, my master's, a a one degree ago. (laughs) And, (laughs) Uh, but everybody in my department said uh, it's too large. Um, like what you want to do um, is just too large and it'll be wasted on the master's because no one reads master's thesis. But <laughs> once you go into the PhD, then I consider more of a professional. So uh, at the time, I wasn't sure if I was going to even uh, continue in, in academia because of uh, funding issues. I was you know, self-funded and working and just exhausted. So just I think challenges of life when you're sort of at a crossroads, what are you going to do? And there was a moment where I thought I'm going to abandon all this altogether because um, one of the risks for myself is that once the PhD thesis is published uh, firmly um, and open access to the world, because my university has an open access policy for their PhD research, it means that my legal name, like, I mean, I use which, which saftic here, but it means that my, legal name will be uh, openly associated with Satanism. So that's mm-hmm. a certainly a, uh, something I have to think about. But I decided years ago that if I was going to do this research right, that I had to. Um, if I'm going to expect members to be honest with me, then I sort of have to be honest with the world about my position also within the COS. Yeah. I certainly understand that. Um, is your concern solely to impress scholars and to impress upon them the information that you've uh, researched, or is it to present Satanism um, to a larger, you know, the public as it were, and not just scholars? That's an interesting question because most uh, doctoral scholars write two versions. So there's the thesis itself, the one that I would write with highly academic jargon, lots of theory, (laughs) Um, uh, which the general public may be interested in, but also may get lost a little bit in because uh, I'm not, my primary audience isn't a popular audience or even um, necessarily an educated audience, but more experts in my field, uh, give Mm -hmm. or take. Uh, So that particular version um, tends not to be as uh, interesting (laughs) for the general population, although some people do read it. Uh, then when, if, if you're lucky and you get a book deal, which hopefully I'll get, um, you sort of rewrite that for a slightly more popular audience. And you can still include um, some of your more interesting findings and your more interesting uh, theories. It just means that you try to limit the amount of highly specialized jargon. And um, you do try to make it a bit more accessible. I am fortunate, I suppose, that my writing style itself um, is a little bit more accessible. I I tend to write that way anyway because um, I get frustrated when I read studies that are so highly pretentious that I get lost. (laughs) If I know this topic and I'm familiar with the jargon and I'm getting lost, you know, with this this type of contrived um, language, Mm -hmm. then... Um, then it doesn't serve anybody well. So I, I tend to try to write that way anyway, a little bit. 
And it's not dumbing down because dumbing down is another thing. I'm not uh, pandering or being condescending to my audience. I'm just reframing uh, things in a way that um, an audience, a, diff a popular audience would understand more. Um, so if I, if I frame things like living satanically in the world, uh, that's a perfectly understandable and accessible um, question, research question. My research question to my thesis committee might be, <laughs> I'm investigating uh, material culture via these particular theories and this particular methodology, and I outline it that way. And my research question is like a paragraph long and Jeez. includes all these things. Yeah. So it, 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 it really is just about um, shifting the 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 perspective. Uh, I'm also fortunate in the sense that uh, Satanism itself, because of its titillating nature, always kind of generates a bit of interest. So even my um, more boring, well, boring, uh, not to me, I always find it exciting, uh, types of papers are always a little bit more, um, pique the public's interest more than uh, different types of studies. So I have colleagues who are doing really fascinating, interesting stuff with um, ancient texts of early Christianity. Uh, I'm, we have lots of discussions. I'm really interested in some of these uh, texts that were only recently uncovered in the past 50 years and what it means for how uh, scholars rethink early Christianity and what it was, um, because these texts reflect a very different version from what uh, people... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> seem to think. But even those studies, they get published, and um, other scholars are very interested. There's a lot of Christianity scholars who are really interested in this kind of thing. Um, but when researchers write about it, they or like journalists write about the research on it, it gets a little bit skewed, and it's it's not really, um, not everybody's that interested because I think, well, this, what's, who cares about late antiquity and their Gnostic ideas? Right. <laughs> uh, Satanism, because it's, titillating now and will in deliberately so and likes to provoke that kind of thing has a little bit of a, a more marketing factor now i cannot write a study thinking about how how good is this going to be at marketing <laughs> but i because i think that would also uh, really skew my study and make make for bad research like really bad research but after if i work with a publisher i can say well here's the research you tell me mm -hmm. <laughs> how, you know, after the research is done. Uh, that's not my concern right now, but I, I would be a fool not to understand that later on that can be something that could help uh, sell a book if I was going to write one, right? I mean, that's not, yeah. um, it, would be, it would be disingenuous for me to say, to downplay the possibility of that kind of thing or the interest it may, may generate or not. I mean, there's books on Satanism out there and, you know, some of them sell and some of them don't, so... Who knows? Yeah. Well, uh, we just have to, this has been an incredibly interesting look into your studies. Thank you so much for the time. Where can good folks listening find a little bit more about you online? Well, they can uh, check the Facebook page, which is unorthodoxy at which Zaftig. They can email me directly at zaftigworks, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, they can check out the blog at wordpress.com unorthodoxyblog.com <laughs> and they can email you and you can forward it to me yeah well again thank you very much it's always fascinating I cannot wait to see some uh, some information when you're finally finished with, with your studies thank you I am not a liberal nor a conservative I am not a democrat nor a republican I am not a socialist nor a capitalist I am not an authoritarian and I'm definitely not fighting for your cause. 
I belong to no party, I support no politicians, I am loyal to no state, and your cause celebra means nothing to me. I am Darren Deicide, Agent Provocateur. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Agent Provocateur. I am Darren Deicide. There's always so much to talk about, and I had to really sit and think about this one. It was not an easy decision. I had planned on a segment about the drug war, where I talk about how drug dealers are nothing more than entrepreneurs expediting the process of Darwinism. Speaking of Darwinism, I was also hoping to do something about the tried-and-true American concept of eugenics, tackling the traditions and where to go in the wake of the crushing Nazi defeat. Easy there, fans of Godwin. Yeah, only 2% of you got that reference. Pat yourself on the back, smarty pants. I could have done a pure humor, like I did a few times in the past, to deflate the gravity of world issues and run back to human commonalities we could all laugh at. Nah, for this agent provocateur piece, I want to talk about one of my passions, Americanism. Where is this country going, and what does it mean? In particular, I want to talk about a new breed of species that's slowly rising from the muck of Reaganism and high-fructose corn syrup. I'm talking about millennials, this new generation of self-righteous, emasculated idealists whose endless battle cry is, I'm hurt! And I don't want you to think that I'm just looking to pick a fight with only this group of people, because they're really just a case example for a broader evolution of America. It's an America that has abandoned its own identity. You see, there are many ways one could look at the American Revolution, but broadly speaking, I think you can place it into two categories. The first are those who saw it as a political revolution. They point to the facts that illustrate how the new American state was a byproduct of a larger outgrowth of industry with roots in the United Kingdom. They see the skew in power and the hypocrisy of how various citizens or non-citizens were treated under its domain. The other is one that saw it as a revolution of ideas, a radical redefinition of freedom that called for a republic with the state's hands severely tied in ways that had never been tied before. If you look closely, there really isn't one view on this that's entirely correct. There's some truth to each. But some people have taken it upon themselves to disregard the latter entirely for a view on history more closely aligned with the former. After the Reconstruction era, the United States expanded its wealth and began to establish itself as an imperial world power engaging itself in the Spanish-American War, for instance, to broaden its influence, and a great deal of thinking began to go into how to manipulate public views. Thus, you have the birth of the public relations industry. For whatever it's worth, this industry, combined with the hyper-connectivity of information technology, has given rise to a highly polled population. And oh, is it revealing! A recent Pew Research poll surveyed sample groups generally in the categories of the silent generation, quote-unquote, which were 70 to 87-year-olds, baby boomers, who constituted 51 to 69-year-olds, generation Xers, who were 35 to 50-year-olds, and millennials, 18 to 34-year-olds. They decided to poll these groups of people, spanning internationally, on perhaps the most sacred American value and institution, the First Amendment. 
of the U.S. Constitution. First, the question asked whether people believe that citizens should be able to make public statements that are offensive to minority groups. We begin to see the skew. 80% of silent generation, the oldest generation, said that citizens should be able to make public statements that are offensive to minority groups. This would affirm those Al Jolson records and Tex Avery cartoons you only let out for your, of your archive for certain guests. 71% of boomers and 70% of Gen Xers also agreed. 58% of millennials agreed. Then Pew decided to revamp the question. They asked, should the government be able to prevent people from saying these things? The results from Europe are obvious, a place where there is utter hostility to free speech. In places like Germany, the number of people who thought the government ought to be able to prevent people from making public statements that are offensive to minority groups soared to 70%. Hey, Germany, go fuck yourself. Now go ahead and work on some legislation to shut me up. But back to this millennial shit. Here are the results on that question. 12% of the silent generation agreed with the idea. 24% of the boomers. 27% of Gen Xers. And wait for it. 40% of millennials thought government should be able to prevent people from making statements that could be construed as offensive by minority groups. Oh, let me continue to build my case for this weak, dependent new generation of Americans. Another Pew study, which utilized U.S. Census Bureau statistics, took a look at the living habits of Generation Britney Spears. After the financial crash of 2009, unemployment shot up to between 10 and 15 percent, and since then has been declining steadily to approximately a 7.7 percent number currently. Well, that's great news, right? Another chance for Generation Cuddle My Balls Lightly, please, to pick themselves up and pave a way of their own. No, the same Pew Research study found that from 2007 to 2015, the amount of young adults from that same group that was polled about speech issues suffered a decline in how many were living independently, as in leaving their family households. 71% in 2007 polled that they were living independently, and that decreased to 67% in 2005 of generation, wipe my bum gently, please, living on their own. Well, maybe they're victims of circumstance, Darren. I mean, there could be a number of factors keeping these young adults in their parents' house. Maybe the economy hasn't completed its recovery, and it's not by choice. Well, Pew Research conducted another poll, this time to measure attitudes towards this situation. Pew polls conducted amongst millennials found that 78% were satisfied with their living arrangements. So many think the idea of being a fully grown adult still living under your parents' roof was peachy keen. 48% report paying rent to their parents. At the same time, nearly 8 in 10, 78% of these 25 to 34-year-olds say they don't currently have enough money to lead the kind of life they want. Surprise, surprise. Compared with 55% of their same age peers 
who aren't living with their parents. And yet somehow through all this, a fusion massive millennial poll surveyed 1,000 millennials and asked if they expected to be a millionaire in their lifetime. A millionaire. The results? Over a quarter said yes. 28%. And this generation is projected to outgrow the baby boomer generation in overall size, making it the nation's largest living generation. This is it, people. This is America's future, coddled, protected, scared of just about everything, especially those things that might involve facing the realities of responsibility. And so they turn to a nanny state and say, save me. Save me from terrorists, guns, the guy with his mugshot on the 10 o'clock news, speech that might hurt my feelings, and worst of all, leaving my parents' house. Whining, self-indulgent weaklings are the new Americanism, ready to roll back freedoms that were established with blood, guts, self-determination, and good old-fashioned rebellious American independence. This generation of young adults has also sometimes been labeled the boomerang generation for its proclivity to move out of the family home for a time and then boomerang right back. I call them that because they're ready to repeat history, boomeranging Americanism right back into the foibles it was trying so desperately to correct. I may be sounding like a grumpy old codger raging about how things aren't what they used to be, and you may be right. This may be the way things are headed. I accept that. The first time I saw the movie Idiocracy, a chill shot up my spine. But I cannot help but hear the words of Thomas Jefferson calling for a rebellion every 20 years. I chose this subject for a reason, and I'm not at liberty to articulate exactly the motivations, but suffice it to say, I want this episode to end on a resounding note. Part of the reason I've been doing Agent Provocateur, besides having this wonderful exchange with some of you that aren't afraid of exploring the subject matter, is my passion for the values that have established this grand republic. People inquisitive and intelligent enough to sift through the information we have about human civilizations find that every society thinks of itself as free. Every government claims to be working in service of its people, thus implicitly claiming to be democratic, an extension of the people's will, or the public's will. Then along came the American Revolution. Informed by the Enlightenment, and the failures of the United Kingdom, a bastard rebel son sought to redefine freedom. No longer would it be defined by servitude to the state. Instead, its primary document would be an enumeration of restrictions on the state. Freedom was more on your head. Survival is your issue. As you can see, I am but one who refuses to negate what was principally at stake for the American Revolution. America is a unique place as a republic that is starting to approach 300 years of existence with no coup or revolution. The closest America came to a total breakdown was the Civil War, and that birthing pain only reestablished the strength of this union. This isn't the only way in which America is unique. America is the only country to have followed through on nuclear warfare with the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, sending an interesting unilateral precedent the consequences of which may remain to be seen. But as things go on, 
there are some indications of hostility towards some of the fundamentals of American freedom. It's not a new story. By the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, adopted in 1913, we see a radical shift away from an enumeration of restrictions on the state and instead an enumeration of states' rights. For the first time, the Constitution was starting to solidify state power. And we're seeing more and more a vocal consensus against the First and Fourth Amendment. To truly understand the value of these principles, you have to look at history and learn about what gave rise to these ideas and why they came to being. I'm sure there's some slogan I could evoke about history and not repeating mistakes, but I could also probably evoke some slogan about how the more things change, the more they stay the same. What I do know is that this experiment we call the American Revolution is not over. And no matter how much the millennial generation may attempt to chip away at this freedom, there will most certainly always be those who do not forget and carry this black flame into battle. Ladies and gentlemen, this, as well as every segment of Agent Provocateur, has been a great pleasure. This is Darren Deicide signing off. Welcome to Milton Eroticism, episode 31, Where Your Easy A. I'm a Den Den. One of my favorite flicks is the teen comedy Easy A. I'd seen advertisement posters around my campus when it first came out, and my interests, uh, they weren't really peaked. I thought to myself, oh, great, another coming-of-age formulaic story. 
but I was pleasantly surprised by a thoughtful tale with great value outside of the whole teen romantic comedy shenanigans. We follow a girl named Olive, narrating the past two-week adventure at her high school. She avoids camping with her best friend's hippie naturalist parents by telling her friend uh, she had a date with a college freshman, to which her friend interpreted as, oh, you're going to go fuck that college freshman. Well, thanks to a Jesus freak eavesdropping from a stall, the whole school suddenly believes her to be a slut. And I should note that throughout this movie, in her literature class, they're reading The Scarlet Letter. <laughs> At one point, a, a, a member of the Jesus Freak Club tells her, you know, she ought to wear a Scarlet A on her chest. And after a witty little bitch fight in class that turns into a fist fight, Olive ends up in detention with her old gay pal Brandon, who is getting bullied for not confirming he is straight and denying that he is gay, though in private he is out to Olive. Olive informs him to either embrace what people already think or go with the flow till he gets out of high school. He chooses the latter, as Olive does, and they attend a party thrown by the most popular girl in school, making sure everybody hears them having sex, which is really one of the funniest scenes in the movie. Because that man has no idea what the hell he's doing. He's moaning like a girl, and she keeps slapping him, saying, what the fuck are you doing? So Olive's slutty reputation is enhanced, and Brandon is accepted by all the jocks in the herd. Yeah, you, know, you, you, you put your penis in a woman, suddenly you're awesome. Mm-hmm. Personally, I didn't find it all that awesome. I was just kind of with what he's fighting about. This is ridiculous. And yeah, it's okay, but... Uh, nope. Something that bleeds and applause at the same time is a little bit too much like a Saw movie for my taste. So anyway, while there are nuances of teenage issues throughout the film, uh, we can spare those little story snags and uh, discuss how Olive handles the rumor mill that she is indirectly responsible for. Who the fuck am I kidding? She caused the whole thing. After her encounter with the, uh, the Jesus Freaks and a few other instances, uh, that day at the end of the movie, she redesigns herself to look like what everybody had already thought of her and adding a scarlet A to every outfit. Brandon tells the other undesirables of the school the deal him and Olive struck, beginning a business for Olive, where they give her gift cards to various places and allows them to tell everyone something sexual that they did. She notes that while everyone in the school thought she was sleeping with guys for money on top of being a slut, no one had actually asked her out or had legitimately tried to sleep with her throughout these business deals she finds out dirty secrets like a guidance counselor sleeping with a stupid 21 year old utterly sexy student who is also a part of the jesus freak club and olive is used as a scapegoat by the counselor because she finds out she has chlamydia from the jesus freak student which she passes to her husband who is also a teacher now, after, tire, after Olive gets tired of her social experiment, she asks everybody to tell the truth. And she is threatened and denied left and right. Finally, at the end, she does a podcast admitting to everybody that everything was a lie and points the fingers right back at them. Now, I've done similar things like this. I still do it. I find it to be hysterical, and I'm quite happy to keep that scarlet A. This is in direct opposition to the idea of slut shaming, which to me goes hand in hand with the idiocy of safe spaces. Your words hurt me, so I'm going to go sit on a beanbag and cry. (laughs) Slut shaming is criticizing something 
uh, or someone for their perceived violation of sexual taboos and promiscuous behavior. And I think when someone fights this, they're losing a great opportunity for power and a good fucking laugh. Some argue that this is breaking the last few sexual taboos in society. And there is an argument there, I have to admit it. But I think pointing out hypocrisy and demonstrating the accuser's hypocrisy is the absolute best. I believe that with damnation comes freedom. When you're already bad, you can do anything. Some could argue that the trick is to dance around being bad by pulling something similar to Mae West's quips, saying the naughty without saying it, letting one's imagination do the dirty work. But here I have to remind everybody, even Mae West said, when a man said, aren't you married? She goes, I'm trying, why do you keep reminding me? I'm trying to forget. Yeah, she wasn't all that sly. Let's let's frickin' face it, all right? That, that girl was a dirty little whore. Bless her, bless her satanic heart. So letting one's imagination do the dirty work, well, that's fine for flirting. And we all know that most people, pretty much everybody, they're not virgins, and they're sleeping around just as much as everybody else is. But as I said numerous times, no one admits to it. Everyone is suffering from a sexual, low-grade, morally inept, grandiose complex. Slut-shaming, precisely being a so-called victim of slut-shaming, is the acceptance of the moral code by which someone is judging you and holding you accountable for. And you're playing right into their hands by denying the accusations. Turn the fucking tables on these people. You, you see, as... as the one who is a subject of the rumor mill, you have all the dirt. You know all their dirty little secrets, and you have nothing to lose. You're already evil. You're already a slut. You're already bad, and you're already a whore. The only power these terrified little moralists have is calling you a name that you perceive as bad and think will cost you dating opportunities. Well, as our lovely little Olive tells us, you may. But you have to be okay with that. I mean, think about it. Would you really want to date someone who's that easily swept up in a witch hunt? Now, people have protested this acceptance with the adage of uh, a lady in the streets and a freak in the sheets, which is all well and good. But actively denying rumors or hiding your sexual exploits because of what a new romantic partner thinks is inexcusable, unless you're dating someone for some kind of material goal or game. Besides, if you're good in bed, they'll think you're a slut anyways. No one gets good in bed by being celibate. If you're a flirt, they'll think you're a slut. If you sleep with someone too early in dating, they'll call you a slut. If you break up with them after sleeping with them, they'll call you a slut. Really, at the end of the day, they'll call you a slut for a hundred reasons. And I don't like that I have to keep it hidden that I've slept with uh, some of my friends from their new boyfriends. And it's a constant topic I have with them, reminding them that they are lying to someone they say they love. Now, I'm going to repeat that. You're lying to someone you've said you shouldn't, you said you wouldn't, and that you said you do not lie to. I bring it up early on that I've slept with or I'm currently sleeping with most of my gay friends. And I usually do hear the word slut, which I kind of wrap with, honey, you have a list of your fetishes on Grindr. Let's not, let's not play games here. <laughs> Now, I'm not telling you to go out and shout everything you've done with anyone you've done it with. What I'm telling you is that actively keeping it hidden plays into the shame factor, and denial of these accusations robs you of the freedom in being evil. But I think the Black Pope said it best. 
to quote Anton LaVey, he's playing poker and they're playing poker, but I'm playing blackjack. As always, keep your skirts up, your pants down, and no matter who bends over, there's power in secrets and shame. Hell yeah. Good job, man. I, I, I really, really like that idea. I Thank you. But what would you know? You've been married for God knows how long. <laughs> I like it because I don't remember it that well. Um, no, I, I, it's it's owning any label given to you. And, and there's nothing more satanic than uh, accepting that, uh, you know, that the bad guy name and turning it to your advantage i mean that that is satanism <laughs> in in the name that is satanism well yeah uh, so that's I think the whole fantastic. reason we're satanists do you think it, it's always it's always surprised me because the more we progress as a i'm gonna say just popular american culture um it seems the fewer boundaries there really are but this is one of those boundaries from you know this i don't know if it's a pseudo victorian era idealism on sexuality or relationships or behavior but the idea pardon me of of being a slut is still a very real thing for some reason i mean we've broken down so many other barriers why is this still one that persists well i think a part of it is just you know the us uh, you know, inside the circle, outside the circle type of thing. But, you know, you'll find that you'll find that 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 will never go away. As long as we are homo sapiens, that trait of our nature will never go away. So besides that point, um, it's I think it's. Uh, God damn it. I, I think it. I, I think a part of it is to make you feel better. The person who's calling you a slut. Mm -hmm. it, it makes you feel uh, morally superior and it's it, I, I think it's funny when i go to gay clubs and gay men are notoriously promiscuous i mean you have two men let's you know, let, let's face it we all have the same libido you know so <laughs> oh, notoriously promiscuous and they still call each other oh no you don't want to sleep with him why he sleeps with everybody i'm sorry what's that on your phone grind are you on grinder right now does that say bareback me in the back of my back seat really <laughs> Are you kidding me? It's, you know, you go through a parking lot at a gay club. I think they're it, just as for every person that's inside the club dancing, there's two of them screwing in the parking lot. <laughs> and it's straight people aren't any better. You know, a, a man wants to pick up a woman who's sexually liberated, but he won't date her because he's like, how how can this be the mother of my children? <laughs> I'm sorry if I were straight I would want that to be the mother of my children if I had to sleep with her for the rest of my life my god I'm gonna be a happy camper <laughs> I'm gonna be happy she's gonna tell my son you know listen this is how you do it and she's gonna tell my daughter honey there's nothing wrong with having fun as long as you do it safely and responsibly yeah but in, it's uh, it just makes you feel better you know the stud wants to call the loose women a whore because you know every man's been in her and yet they're all trying to get these kind of women I just I, that, that just blows my mind yeah you know <laughs> it, it is an interesting dichotomy because we are at once chasing the tail and then as soon as we find out it's available we're like whore slut how dare you <laughs> Avail yourself to my cock when I've—that's all I've wanted this whole time. 
Yeah. Right. And, and <laughs> I mean, not many of my straight buddies have that problem, though. They're like, no, 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 no. I like that my lady wants to go lingerie shopping and she wants to come back and she's going to be a dirty little whore. And I like that she can talk about that, too. Because mm. I'm like, now, see, that's that's beautiful. That's nice. That's people owning their their sexuality. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really important point you just said there, too, because I think a lot of it comes with age, experience and just sexual awareness. You know, we're, you know, by and large, everyone is sort of taught this idea that, you know, it's it's if it's not shameful, it's something that you shouldn't be doing for some other reason. And so with all of that uh and it's weird in America too to that that we are so sexually closed off and frustrated, but but we are, and and that just sort of bleeds through to to children's psyches, and and we sort of set them up for failure almost by imprinting them, uh, knowingly or not, with that idea, and that then perpetuates this idea that well, if you know what you're doing, you must be a whore, and therefore I want nothing to do with you because for some reason that means you're unsafe, or uh, I, I wouldn't be able to find any happiness, you know, being with you or whatever it is. It's just a weird thing. It's, it's like we're we're staring down at our dicks and we have a knife in our hand and we're like, I'm gonna cut you off, if if you are gonna bring me any pleasure at all, like just just give me a chance. And the older you get, you're just like horrified by that idea, like, oh, what the fuck was I doing? This is horrible. This is a great idea. Let's all have fun. Why, <laughs> you know, just through experience and age, you you get over those stupid, uh, uh, weird guilt or or shame feelings that you had as as kids. Do you think it's really that different though between men and women? Uh, I know traditionally women are often supposed to be more vulnerable and shamed. Do you think that's changed through time? I think women have mostly changed it more than men. Now, this is one of the points that I agree with uh, some of these liberal, uh, not not the crazy feminists, of course. This is one of the points that I, I agree with on feminists. You remember all those slut shaming demonstrations? Girls were taking off their tops and writing yeah. slut for it. Now, I, I don't, I don't like how they did it. Mm-hmm. Though I did think it was funny for a bunch of girls to take off their tops and go marching writing slut. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> but I'm just kind of like, why? It, it's kind of like with the gay rights movement. Uh, it, it, demonstration in your personal life, I think, is often better than a political movement. Um, but. Anyway, uh, I think women kind of getting tired of it and and owning it, like, you know what? No, 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 this is better. There has been articles out maybe the past five years at least um, about women using men for sex and this whole cougar thing about older women picking up younger guys and saying, that's okay, honey, you just stay pretty. I'll take care of you. And I'm like, and some men are kind of like, I feel so used. And I'm like, no, that is hilarious. I applaud that. That is a great joke. And at the end of the day, that's all I'm after. I think it's funny to turn the tables on people. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious. Even if you end up the victim of your own joke, I still think it's funny. It's like the Joker. He'll die laughing. Um, but I think I think that's changing. I think uh, more and more women don't have a problem with um, – getting down and dirty and having a one night stand. And if anybody even, you know, says they're a whore or a slut or anything, they just kind of shrug their shoulders or 
break their nose. Either way, I applaud the behavior. So, (laughs) (laughs) but I still think, you know, without, see, when I say things like this, I I get emails saying, oh, you're, you know, you're a hypocrite without you're against all those feminist things. I'm like, no, not really. You just, you don't listen to me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You're not listening. That's, that's your thing. So, (laughs) um, women have had that and still do more than men. Sure, men are pressured to go out there and spread their seed and be a stud, but women are, you know, like, no, deny your sexuality. Um, you should only have sex if a man's going to give you something, like their emotions or security or something like that. No, for you, sex is about love. For men, sex is about screwing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, that is just stupid. It's just stupid. It's not even backed up by research. There's no scientific article that says that. Not one. Mm-hmm. Most of them say the opposite. <laughs> so, and even now I hear, you know, young, younger girls say, well, some just take it too far. They're like, well, listen, I'm going to fuck like a man. And if I'm going to fuck like a man, I can get shit. And I'm like, well, now you're just, now you're just missing the whole goddamn point, woman. <laughs> but I, I think that's changing. And um, I, I think uh, it's becoming less of an issue. And I just, I, books like The Ethical Slut, though I don't agree with everything in that book, I, I, I applaud the work that those writers have done and similar sex positive writers. Where it's like, if this is what they call you, that's okay. Own it. Own it. Redefine it. Reclaim the word, so to speak. Though I hate that phrase as well. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately think of the N word. <laughs> Wait, what? Hold on. Let me think. What? What word that could be? Is it Nancy? Oh, close. Are you making a homophobic reference, Adam? Cl- That's it? I quit? It. I quit? Yeah, I'm a homophobe, man. I'm sorry. I just, I couldn't hide it anymore. Any straight man who doesn't let me in their motel room in D.C. in the middle of the night is a homophobe. <laughs> <laughs> Any man who does not lock, lock his wife in the bathroom and let <laughs> in the hotel room the gauntlet is, is a thrown. <laughs> It, that's it. <laughs> so you can't fire me, I because I'm gay, but I can quit because you're a homophobe. <laughs> God damn, that's not fair. <laughs> Fucking shit. I never said it was fair, but I did say it was politically correct. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, again, amazing episode as usual. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this for such a long time, and you know, just sharing all of these. Um, sometimes taboo, but always thought-provoking ideas with the audience. I, I really do appreciate it. Um, where can the good folks listening find a little bit about more about you and about these topics online? Well, you can go to www.militanteroticism.com, um, which is primarily for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a there's, you know, you can militant eroticism on nine cents on Facebook. Then there's militant eroticism for the book, also on Facebook. And then just me, Aden Arden on Facebook. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's it. But I would watch, uh, I would watch I Satanists in the next, I don't know, two weeks. There's going to be something nice on there from me to you. Happy New Year. <laughs> wow. All right. Oh, Let's I'm keep so turned on thinking there. about it. Yes, please do. It's going to be sexy. This church needs more cock, Adam, I'm telling you. (laughs) And I'm going to give it to them. I will (laughs) give it to them. All the people are crying out for cock. 
I, wish, I didn't go that far. <laughs> they may not be crying out for it, but they're going to get it anyway. Otherwise, they're a bunch of homophobes. <laughs> and listen, if you're politically be... correct, you have to accept my cock. Listen, yeah. it's in the Satanic Bible. You can't be homophobic or against a den or den and be a Satanist at the same time. It, it's a footnote, but it's there. <laughs> it's, it's there. I promise you. It may just be a footnote in my copy, but that doesn't matter. Because <laughs> if it's in my book, but it's, it's in there. <laughs> it's in there. I'll take a picture. I'll post it. All right. Well, th- thanks, man. I, I really appreciate it. Again, let's uh, let's do a little Satanism today. Yes. Once again, to Satanism Today here on the Nine Cents Podcast, I am Magister David Harris, being joined by the proprietor and mad genius behind isatanist.com. I'd like to welcome to Satanism Today, John Shaw. John, how you doing, buddy? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm doing very well, I should say. Not good. I'm doing well. <laughs> how are you? I'm doing all right. A little tired, a little cranky, but you know, it's it, it comes with the territory. That's when you pour a stiff one. Yes. Nice uh nice G and T. Cap off yes. the evening. Some tangeray maybe. Yes, yes. Um let's start. Um let's start with your your initial discovery of Satanism. Let's you know, how did how did you discover Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible? All right. Um, it's a short story. It begins with a, uh, me as a little kid hanging around with a bunch of hoodlums, um, just learning about the occult, becoming interested in the occult. Um, I'll tell you a little story real quick. Uh, when I was young, I was kind of I lived near these railroad tracks, and I was walking along and saw this little shiny thing in the dirt. Um, I grab it out. I'm like, what the hell is this thing? It's a five-pointed star, but it looks one of those little, you know, tchotchke things that you um, find, like, you know, you put 50 cents in this machine and it'll, like, stamp something on the back of it for you and shit. And on the front, it said Pisces, which I am. Um, not that I follow that. I'm just saying I am. And uh, on the back of it, it said Beelzebub666. And it just, I'm like, what the hell is this? And... I kept it. It was interesting to me. Uh, my friends would, would tell me that Beelzebub was the name of a demon and all this stuff. And I started reading about that and demonology and witchcraft and all everything I can get my hands on with the occult just interested me. Um, and then I uh, read the Satanic Bible. A friend of mine got it and uh, I read it. And uh, as soon as I, I think I was 13 at that time. And as soon as I did, you know, that old cliche thing, boom, I just was like, this is me. So, yeah. Now, you said you were you were reading other works, you know, of studying the occult and whatnot. What about Satanism stuck out in your mind as opposed to some of the other stuff you were reading at the time? Well, I got to admit, when I was reading that stuff, it was interesting. I mean, everyone remembers that big blue book. Um, I can't remember who wrote it, <laughs> uh, the witchcraft book or something. But you're reading all these things, and, I'm, you know, I was really interested in it, but it was all filled with 
all kinds of things. You couldn't do this. You got to do this with this certain candle lit. Uh, and the moon's got to be aligned with Pluto. And on the seventh night you do. And it's like, it was just, it was all this weird. I didn't really get into all that about it. And when I read the Satanic Bible and LeVay's like, all oh, that is hogwash. This is the real deal. It just made sense. I'm like, aha, that's all you really need. He, he broke it down to its basic form and basic level, and it just, uh, you know, it struck a real good a good chord with me. That is definitely one of the things that, that struck me about Dr. LeVay's writing is that whereas every other occult text was, you know, putting out this is, this is the way to achieve this, just like any other religion would, Anton yeah. LeVay instead just said, hey, here's a particular roadmap. Here's how I got there. You don't necessarily need to go this way. There are plenty of other ways you can go, tailor the journey to your own aesthetic. But, you know, here's a basic framework. You know, do with it, yeah. what, do with it what you will. And that's really what appealed to me, particularly about the magical aspect of, of Anton LaVey's writings. Um, and so that stuck out in your mind. And so, and then you... Yeah, especially the part, you know, where LeVay was saying that, um, you know, they're, they're, they're calling upon essentially the same force uh, in nature, you know, by whatever name they they wanted to use and, and whatever badge they were putting on to seem righteous. And it, it just made sense to me. It just it, it came to me as truth. I'm like, yeah, he's right. You know, they're, they're really doing essentially the same thing, just in a different manner. And, and they're trying to, you know, not admit the fact that... Uh, they're using magic and they're using witchcraft and sorcery and things like that to attain their desires, but they want to do it all under the guise of some sort of righteousness. And uh, he pointed out that hypocrisy in that, and, and it, that that also uh, struck me pretty pretty good. Yeah. Um. Now, I Satanist. Let's yes. talk. Let's talk a little bit about I Satanist and the impetus that led you to create that website. Uh, because the the work you do and the, the products you create are nothing short of top notch. Thank you. Um, um, from the from the sterling silver bath mats to the the gorgeous LED wall hangings. Um, ah, yeah. I got to see the uh, I got to see one of them live and in living flashing color at a uh, at Casa de Mansfield uh, for Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes, that thing is pretty pretty cool. Um, Sweet. What led you to uh, to want to do this? When you, I mean, I've, I'm 44. I've been around uh, here and there through the years. Um, haven't been too vocal about my, you know, Satanism, I guess. Um, but after a while, you see things come and go. And um, even the church had their emporium, which was was awesome. But that uh, something happened with that. And as things do, things happen. Um, and I just, when I saw the need for it and I felt the desire to do it. I'm like, I can do this. I can make it better. I can raise the bar. Um, I can do things that are in my mind creatively and, and bring them to fruition. And, uh, other people started really, you know, appreciating that and liking it. And, um, I mean, in a short, I think about what we've been doing this for about a year and three or four months and I'm, I'm above 13,000 likes. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, I really have a lot of customers and, and, and a fan base for this already. So it's kind of a, it's a little, you know, it's kind of like a pat on the back and it gives, lets me know, Hey, you're doing the right thing. And, um, 
got a lot of accolades from from Central and other prominent Satanists such as yourself. So it's really it's really a cool feeling to know that I'm doing something good um, and something worthwhile for for Satanists. Um, what's your favorite thing that you've you've got available in the store right now? Your personal favorite item. <clears throat> um, yeah, there's a few. Uh, I love. I love the LEDs, of course. Uh, that idea came to me when I just started messing with lights and <laughs> different things and thinking, hey, wait a minute, this would be cool if this can happen. Uh, let me see how it turns out. And it turned out great. Um, I've got, I was in contact with Magus Gilmore about doing the uh, LeVay sigil in, in sterling silver and gold and silver and things like that, you know, to scale exactly how it was. So he sent me some scans and of the actual piece and things like that. And I kind of got it to where I could, you know, it's, it is 99.99% right there with what he, what LeVay originally had. So I think that piece, um, is, is one of my favorite the leds are my favorite but even like now today um we just did the brimstone aura uh pendant uh, people are really liking it there's a good buzz going on like on facebook right now about it and it's a good feeling you know <laughs> it's, it's always a good feeling when you know people are out there enjoying the product that you're putting out yeah it is it really it really is you know it's no different than a like a musician making music and if people are loving it i mean it's a it's something like that you know it's really cool let's talk a little bit about the devil you know yeah. Brand new podcast, yourself and Dorian Gray. Yes. Um kind of kind of going in a in a comedic direction. Yeah, definitely. Definitely like to have fun. Um what the, was um, what was the uh what was the driving force behind wanting to do that? Actually Dorian. Dorian was the driving force and um when he was driving by, I jumped in, you know. I just I just went for the ride. No, he was it was his idea. Um, he wanted to do it, and he was running it by me. He's like, "What do you think?" And I kind of hit him up. Um, let me go back a little bit. Him and I have hit it off in D.C. We during Conclave, we we'll stay in touch online, things like that. Started talk, calling each other or, or texting and talking about all kinds of stuff. And when he ran that by me, I was like, what a great idea, man. Do it. You should do it. And a day went by or something, and I, I kind of got back to him. I'm like, hey, I've been thinking about that. What are your thoughts about me possibly joining you, like as a team, you know, doing it together? And uh, he was like, that actually sounds awesome. So we decided to do it to do it together. And now uh, what does now this obviously he's a. Uh... He's an artist. He's a tattoo artist. Oh, um, yeah. Very good one. Very, very talented one. Um, do either of you have an extensive comedy background or do you, what were some of your influences or? Well, I don't, I don't know about Dorian. Um, it might be a separate interview. Me, I, uh, you know, as most comedians, uh, you know, that you come to find some of the greatest ones have had the worst childhoods. It's strange how that happens, but uh, not, to, yep. not to bring everybody down, but my childhood really, really sucked. Uh, very abusive uh, parents, drug use, you know, Hell's Angel biker shit and just getting beat by my mother and then by my father by the same thing when he got home. So I don't want to, you know, say, hey, you got to you know, get your ass beat to be funny. But um, a lot of comedians kind of do. You really, <laughs> yeah, it, you really there's you there's no there's no two ways around it. I've no, I have yet to meet. A comedian, um, be, including the the person speaking into this microphone and the redhead sitting behind him, um, <laughs> who uh, did not have some sort of 
bizarre fucked upness happen in their childhood. Yeah. So you kind of you, you you kind of develop a defense mechanism through humor yeah. to deflect the horrificness of what yeah, you went through. That's what happened to me. Plus, I got flat class flirt, so it was cool and class clown in school. So you know that always happened. Ooh. But, um, <laughs> class chatterbox. You know, I couldn't shut the fuck up. I couldn't stop being funny, and and I always got in trouble for that shit. But uh, most likely to be sent to the principal's office. Ho ho. Yeah, yeah. I was one time in high school. I was bad in school, man. I got caught with three different girls by the same teacher and he wasn't i was like oh shit and one i'm up under the stairs with i can't remember this girl's name uh diaz uh, her name was i'm like i can't remember her name was but i just remember <laughs> <laughs> just remember anyway, some, some flavor under, of spanish <laughs> and you always have to use a different finger you know you don't want to mix that shit up so no anyway, exactly i um <laughs> you, you know you, you mix different yeasts and it's you know, it gets messy <laughs> It's just making a babka bread, you know? It's not, it's exactly. Not but like, so he's like, Shaw, again? And I'm like, what? No, what What do you mean? And she's looking at me all weird. I'm like, no, he's just, I don't know what the Oh, what a about. cock block. <laughs> what a dick. <laughs> I wouldn't even be pissed about going to the principal. I'd be like, dude, you're fucking diming me out to the, I don't care. Send me to the principal, suspend me. Don't dime me out to the girl. <laughs> fucking yeah, asshole. Yeah, I took him aside later. I'm like, can I talk to you? He's like, yeah. I'm like, don't, like, like, you know, I know you call me. It's cool, but don't mess me up, dude. Come on. <laughs> Fucking I'm, I'm you hang out I'm to dry. To... What the? That's he's breaking serious guy code rules there. I know. I'm trying to drain fluids here. You're freaking me out. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I you know, I was always... white knight. Jesus, talk about a good guy badge. <laughs> as far as the comedy thing, I I've always been told by my friends and and family and things like that that I'm really funny and. So you know, kind of just stuck with me, and I, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't. I mean, sometimes we all try to be funny, um, which doesn't go over well. But when I'm just myself, um, I tend to be some, you know, be humorous, and it's kind of cool. It's fun. I love to have fun. I love to laugh, and if people are laughing around me, then I think that's what it's all about. And and it, it comes through in the show, and I think it's, you know, personally, I'm very impressed that you've managed to uh, to get Christopher Walken. As a as a permanent fixture on the show, <laughs> I think that's, that's that was a big get for you. Oh yeah, that's an interesting story how that came about. Well, you got to tell it. And I assume you'd like to hear it. But <laughs> there we go. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, um, I was getting a tattoo. Um, went to visit Dorian. So it was nothing but a six-hour ride, which is awesome. He moved to Florida, so now it's a fucking six-hour flight. But anyway. Oh, um, you know, so it was like no big deal driving over there and getting a tattoo, um, this big dragon on my left arm. And it was like an eight hour deal because of every little scale and shadow and highlight and thing. But anyway, he kind of made it a thing. He's like, hey, everyone, John Shaw's coming out. Want you know, if you want to come out and have dinner with us, hang out, all that shit. And uh, it was really cool. Some, you know, a lot of cool people showed up, Matt Sanji and and um, a few others. I, I just I can't remember right now. But uh, one of them was uh, Patrick DeMarco. And he drove all the way from Vegas um, to come out and, you know, hang out for a while. And we're in the shop. Um, and I'm at this, at this point, my arm is like minced meat and I'm a grown man, but I just, after a while, you just get, it hurts. It starts to hurt. <laughs> I'm, I'm not ashamed <laughs> to say that it, that, it, that it hurts. No, it just gets to the point where you're like, Oh, I'm done. I'm so done. And Dorian's, Dorian's like, well, I'm not. And it's, you know, it started to hurt, but to, to, um, 
make us laugh a little bit. Patrick was started doing Christopher Walken impressions. And it got to the point where Dorian couldn't even do it after a while. Because he's like, dude, shut up for a minute. I have to finish this part. And uh, because we're laughing so hard. And you know, you know when you laugh so hard, you got those two points in the back of your head that just start fucking, you know, freaking out on you and you're in pain. Yeah, just your, your back of your head starts throbbing. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Okay, I thought that was only me. But uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it was just crazy. We're laughing. He was spot on. And I look at Dorian. I'm like, you know what? That would be great if that was on the show. <laughs> he's like, yes. So it just happened. Yeah. <laughs> he's, 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 he really does nail walking. I've I've heard a handful of really good walkins. Yeah. Um, like, seriously, like Jay Moore does a great walking. Yeah. Um, um, oh, shit. Um, few good men. Not Tom Cruise, not Jack Nicholson. Uh, right. Not Kevin Bacon, the guy who fuck, I can't think of his name. Why wife's Googling it. <laughs> oh, I was Googling it right now too. <laughs> Let's see who finds it first. It's gonna bother me the second you say it. It's gonna be like, how did I not remember that? Kevin Pollock. Kevin Pollock. <laughs> I won. Fuck. I won. One to nothing, Heather. I've, I've met Kevin Pollock and I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> um one to nothing. That's oh, funny though. God damn it! I'll just... <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, so Kevin Pollock, yeah. So Kevin Pollock, yeah. There we go. Um, do, I guess it does. <laughs> what are the? I'm curious now. I'm what else? What other voices does Pat do? I'm very curious to hear what else he does now. He uh, he claims to do other voices. We actually really haven't had a chance to. Uh extract them from him because we've been so busy with the walking thing, the walking thing so walking yeah he says he does a De Niro um, and other people I can't remember what he said but yeah maybe we'll um, exploit that <laughs> yeah, voice, talent, voice talent is hard to come by um, where yeah. do you guys see the show going nowhere but, uh, no. <laughs> hell in a handbasket um, straight down the I, shitter I don't think we're actually thinking that far ahead, to tell you the truth. I think we're just really having fun, and we're really enjoying the guests that we've had so far. We do have some guests coming up that um, I think everyone will enjoy. Um, even uh, Magis Gilmore is coming on. Um, so I think it's going to be really cool. Yeah, the, sh the show, I mean, for for the few episodes that I listen to, the show is is, act is sounding more and more polished every week I listen. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what everyone's saying. They're like, you're getting better all the time. I'm like, sweet. So number 10 coming out, that's our that's going to be our best one, I guess. <laughs> <So far. laughs> it's your best one until 11. Yeah. Next week, the other one would be the best. But, yeah, I mean, um, we're doing it. We're enjoying it. And uh, I guess we'll do it for as much as we enjoy it. <laughs> so um, what do you... Uh, what do you like to do when you're not uh, making jewelry or uh, doing the podcast? I, I mean, you know, for money, uh, I like to do a lot of graphic design, web design, web development work. Uh, for fun, my wife and I love our wine. Um, she turned me into a, she's like a wine connoisseur. She knows what to drink with what, and it's, I'll, you know, if she just puts it down in front of me, I'll drink it. Um, we love having cigars with our friends, hanging out. I uh, got a you know nice little thing in the yard, and we just go out there and make a little fire and just hang out, shoot the shit, and uh, eat food. Um, we both are uh, martial arts, uh, you know, martial artists for a long time. We're into firearms, archery. We just you know it's Arizona. You got to have uh, a lot of guns out here. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of gun country. 
<laughs> yeah. So I think it's a law that you have to have it, but yeah. it's really, uh, it's fun out here. You know, we have a lot of fun friends come by if they come out to stay with us or whatever. And we'll go shooting. Um, if they got time, <laughs> uh, Dorian stayed with us for two days on his way to Florida. And, uh, we just, he was, t- had a tattoo party, so we couldn't, we couldn't shoot. Darn it. But, um, yeah, just, it's, we just like to enjoy our lives and enjoy our time and our friends that we have and have fun and laugh. So that's what it's all about. And food. Did I mention food? Yes. I don't know if you saw my girlish figure, but I like food, man. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. Um, Here's a question I'm going to start asking people. I'm actually, this is the first time I'm, I'm, and it's stupid because it's such a goofy question. Yeah. What does Satan mean to you? What does (laughs) Satan mean to you? Um, (laughs) So that's our question. um, What's your favorite film? My favorite film is Willy Wonka. The original? Heather Heather should know that. Ah, yes. Um, (laughs) Because you did the the Satanist on Satanic Cinema with with Heather. Yeah. And did Willy Wonka. I could watch that over and over again. Like if we watched it and you said, put it on again, I probably would play it. Cause <laughs> I just, I just like it. You know, I just love that. It just reminds me of the good part of being a kid, um, which I didn't really have that many memories of being a kid, you know, but, uh, that are good anyway, but I loved it. Everything about it. And, 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 and his character, yeah. uh, is so satanic. It's just not funny. I mean, it, it really would be, is. Be, probably be easier to say, what parts of him aren't satanic that it's just, you know, everything he is and, and stands for was just satanic. I mean, it was perfect. It's very true. The movie itself is so beautifully shot, especially for what it was, what? 73, 74. It's, I think 73. I think uh, if you uh, might be right. I, I'm not, um, you know, the, 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 the level of the, the, the co- level of contrast of the colors in that film is, is unbelievable. Yeah. And as far as the, you know, the satanic aspect of that film, really everyone getting what they deserve is really a central <laughs> theme running through that film. Feeling and the effects of their folly. Yes. Yeah, it is very satanic. <clears throat> that film, um, I know I mentioned it on the satanic cinema, th- cinema thing. It, um, it actually flopped when it came out. Uh, when it first came out, it was actually a vehicle for Quaker Oats, the company that actually owned the film. Oh. Um, they were coming out with uh, a candy line, a Willy Wonka candy line, and they were actually using that as like a vehicle to promote the uh, the candy line. And the movie flopped in the box office. Oh. Um, but now it's a cult classic. So yeah, that's you you see that a lot with films from oh, yeah. from that era where they just they did no money at the box office and then just achieved this status after, you know, home video and DVD came of me. And they, they find a new life as, you know, these wonderful classics from the past that you, you would have had access to otherwise. Oh, hell yeah. Um, let's see. I suppose that's, uh, I suppose that's it. Yeah. So John, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. I want to thank you for having me. And uh, where where can people find your uh, find your fine products? Isatanist.com. Um, check out the news feed on the Church of Satan. We're always um, on there with the you know the latest sales if we're having any or uh, new products that come out and things like that. Um, Facebook and uh, and the Devil You Know Podcast.com. All right, John Shaw. Thank you very much for being on Satanism today. David um, Harris, you're welcome, and thank you for having me. 
All right. And if you would like to learn more about Satanism, its beliefs, its tenets, its philosophies, and its practices, you can log on to www.churchofsatan.com, or you can pick up a copy of the Satanic Bible by Dr. Anton zandor Levey. It's a very inexpensive Avon paperback available at most fine bookstores and on the Internet, wherever you may uh, purchase books on the Internet. It's, you know relatively inexpensive book. Pick it up. You might learn something. Uh, that's going to do it this month for Satanism Today. I am David Harrison. Until we speak again, hail Satan. Hail Satan. And that's going to do it for yet another show, everyone, and we hope you truly enjoyed it. You can always visit us on social media, Satanet, Facebook, Google+, Plus, Twitter, and MySpace to get updated on weekly topics. You can download the shows Monday via the RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, YouTube, uh, wherever you get us, leave a rating or comment. We'd appreciate it. And if you'd like to learn more about Satanism or the Church of Satan, wait for Witch Zaftig's book <laughs> in the coming years. Uh, but for the immediate, yep. let's, uh, <laughs> let's check churchofsatan.com. Once again, thank you for joining me. As always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell being joined by Witch Zapdig. The wonderful Witch Zapdig. And until next week, people, hail Satan! Hail Satan!